January 17, 2021, celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, a federal holiday. Welcome in to the world. You're welcome to listen in to let the world see on ABC and on Hulu a movie documentary of the story of Mamie Till, the mother of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was 14 years old, a young man living in Chicago, unfamiliar with the racist, terrorist, hate groups in the southern part of the United States back in 1955. Emmett Till was born with polio and A speech impediment, his mom taught him to whistle before he spoke so that he could get his words out. She attempted to explain to Emmett at 14 why she did not want him to visit her brother and his family in Mississippi in 1955 when, let's just say, the hate groups of today look like a hug compared to the hate groups the white hate groups of 1955. You may be familiar with the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, known as KKK. Still exists today, but nothing to compare to 1955 and before. Well, I don't want to go on too much longer. I wanted to just give you some background if you're someone where in the world and perhaps you weren't born then or maybe you were just a baby then and you didn't hear anything about Emmett Till and his mom, Mamie Till, her husband, Emmett's father, was killed in the war, so she raised her son with the help of her mother in Chicago, in the northern part of the United States. Again, we're going back to 1955 when America was
was quite different. The hate and racism against African Americans and other marginalized groups was institutionalized, inscribed in laws, and there was absolutely no, no laws that protected African Americans and other groups, then it's come a long way, but let's just say there's a lot work, a lot of work that needs to be done. Okay. Just as a reminder, the language and the conversations will be too shocking for some people that are not familiar with how this country was in the 1950s and even in the 60s and 70s. So the language and what happened to this child won't won't make sense. It might be too hurtful, distracting, upsetting for most people. Even people who was born here, grew up here, even as a grown, fully grown adult, the story is very, very hard to wrap your mind around. It's very tragic and heartbreaking, but it's no good to hide this kind of truth because it still exists today, just not reported on as much. So people think, oh, that's a gone by era. That doesn't happen today. Oh, but it does. Not only in the southern part of the United States, but even on the West Coast here in California and everywhere else in the United States and the world. It's on YouTube. ABC News has different segments and I've been told that Hulu also has Let the World See. That's what it's called. Let the World See. Mamie and Emmett Tills Till is spelled T-I-L-L. Mamie is spelled M-A-M-I-E. Emmet is spelled E-M-M-E-T-T. We're going to hear Mamie and Emmet Till's early years. Let the world see episode one part 
Bodies swinging, black bodies being filled with buckshot, black people being tyrannized by forces of white resistance and supremacy that should have long since died. It wasn't just the act of the murder itself that was terrorism when it comes to lynching. The terrorism was also in the fact that they would leave those bodies hanging from trees to warn other black people that this is what happens if you step out of line. In fact, there's about 600 blacks were lynched in Mississippi, and about 4,000 across the South from 1880 to 1940. It was a, it was a common way of, of handling us. I read somewhere that more than 200,000 black people moved to Chicago between the 1920s and the 1950s. For me, both on my mother's side and father's side of the family, folks came from the South. On my mother's side, my grandfather, uh, his people came from Alabama. Same thing was true on my father's side of the family. Like most black folks from the South moved for opportunity and for safety uh, and for security. As I was growing up, it really seemed like almost everybody from Mississippi was coming through our house. The Ellis Island of Chicago. Actually, it was more like a terminal on the Underground Railroad. Emmett's grandmother, Alma Spearman, was instrumental in moving many of our family members from the South to the Chicago area. And then Alma got us to uh, come North. My mother got on a train with five kids, boxes of food, and the oldest one being seven. We were afraid of the train because we didn't see trains that much in it. And this big colossal train sitting up there, we're getting ready to get on it, and, and the smoke was coming out of it, and, and then they make that noise. And so we were free of it, and, but we, we got on the train, and we came and settled uh, in the place called Summerville, Argo, Illinois. Argo Starch Plant was the backbone of the community. You knew that you could come in and you could get a job, even if you didn't have a lot of skills, and you could make an honest living. I was eight years old when I moved to Chicago. My father's name was Moses Wright, but they called him Moses. My father and mother valued education, and they thought that I was going to be sharp and smart. <laughs> so they asked my aunt if I could live with her and go to school, Emmett's grandmother. And she said, send Thelma. When I went to Aunt Alma, Mamie was in her last year of high school. had helped to found the Argo Temple Church of God in Christ, and where she recruited new church members with practically each new Mississippi migrant. She took her strength from her faith, but also from her folks. She seemed to pull on a deep awareness from one fundamental truth, 
Above all else, you must always keep your family close. Well, my family was like most uh, black families during that time. We all lived around each other. My mother's side of the family, we lived with one of my great aunts, my uh, grandfather's sister. So we lived on one block and around the corner lived my maternal grandmother uh, along with another sister. And around the corner from them lived my paternal grandfather. And I always thought that my paternal grandparents lived far from us, but they literally lived 10 blocks away from us. There was a freedom and an openness and just sort of a, a, a sense of community that we all tried to replicate in Chicago, but you understood when you were in the South that that's where it all came from. We came to call it Argo, Little Mississippi. For us, it meant the joy of the familiar, of family and friends, and of course, runaway ambition. But there was that other half, what people knew they had fled. Mimi was sheltered. Her mother was very protective. She begins to hang out with Lewis Till. Lewis Till didn't start out with a lot of advantages. He was an orphan. They had their first date at uh, Berg's truck store. Summit at the time was racially segregated. Lewis took a stand literally by standing up and facing the drugstore owner and saying that they were going to stay there. And he allowed them to stay. From that day on, I really admired Lewis Till, looked up to him. She was 18, so they made their plans and they got married. I will always remember the day Emmett was born. It was July 25th, 1941, a Friday. But I was there when he was born. I was at Daddy Baptist Church in a little piano recital. And my aunt Al Christopher said, Mimi had a boy. Bobo. That was the playful name a young family friend had given to my baby while I was still carrying him. It stuck. Lewis Till was not a very good husband, according to Mamie. He was abusive, even. In fact, she called the police and had a restraining order put on him. And it was that restraining order, in a way, that got Lewis Till in the army. You broke this restraining order, Mr. Till, and I could send your butt to prison, or you can go to join the Army. And Till chose the Army option. After Lewis Till leaves and joins the Army, Mamie moves back into the home with her mother, and Emmett spends his early years in that household. My young cousin, Thelma Wright, was living there at the time. She was about 10 when Emmett was born, and she was always there to pitch in. Oh, I remember Emmett loved bananas. He, he was a good baby. It was like my brother. I pinned diapers on those old birdside diapers. He used to call me Thelma for some reason. When my parents came, they lived in the apartment with Emmett's mother and Emmett, myself and my siblings. And Emmett was the only child, so he seemed to have adored having the fact that there was other young children around. Lewis Till continued to support his family, his 
newborn son and his uh, his wife uh, by arranging to have money sent back from the service. He was uh, stationed in Italy, and Mimi continued to receive money from his pay uh, while he was in the service. When that stopped, one read that one thing that alerted Mimi that something terrible had happened. George Stephanopoulos was to segregate very, very deeply the armed services. The military, can you imagine? A Negro goes over in a foreign soil, thinks he's free. You're not in Mississippi anymore. You're not in Chicago anymore. You're, you're in Italy, right? You're in Germany. You're in foreign theaters of war. Don't you ever forget who you are. This is still maybe received a telegram and the letter was a lie it left out the truth of what had happened to her husband it said soldier died outside of combat by his own fault on june evening in Sittavecchia, italy there were American forces occupying that part of Italy. The only light was because of a false alarm of an air raid on the American base nearby. There was the shooting of an Italian woman, murder of an Italian woman. And there was an alleged rape of two other women. Otilla and his friends had a night off they were drinking, they sat around, they drank half the night, and so they became the number one suspects, and they became convicted. They were convicted. When it went to trial, the woman who was making the accusation was asked, is the person who raped you in this room? And Emmett's father, Louis Teal, was sitting right there, and she said no. No eyewitnesses. No one ever identified Till or his friends the courtroom when the victims were sitting there and no, never any identification all kind of circumstantial evidence so he was executed just because she did not say that he raped her but they still killed him and this was not unusual it was like like a lynching or uh, an execution Emmett was nearly four when I got the telegram much too young to absorb any of it. For him, all that was left of his father's life was the ring that had been returned to me by the army, the one with the initials LT. What I remember personally is that nobody ever talked about Emmett Till Sr. Nobody talked about it. That was the weird part about that whole scenario back in those days. Nobody knew him, nobody asked about him, it just wasn't spoken of. Bobo was four years my senior. Although he was our great protector, he could do whatever I teased, but nobody else had better do it because he was very protective of us. We live next door to each other. We, we right there from day one. We right there next to each other. This picture was taken about 1950. 
was about 11, 12 years old. Uh, Emmett was about 9 or 10. As long as I can remember, he stuttered real bad all the time. Some of the things, like he just couldn't get words out. You know? He had polio as a child, as a baby, and that left him with that uh, speech impediment. He spent his money mostly on, on us, on myself and my four siblings. He just had a kind heart that way. He just wanted people to be happy. He was a happy child, and he wanted people around him to be happy. The last Christmas, we had a beautiful Christmas, 1954, I believe it was. It wasn't like Mississippi when I was a little girl. Everything you had was in a shoebox. We had the pictures taken of Bo and all of the clothes we had bought him, lying across the bed and, of course, posed next to me, our mother and son portrait. Emmett got that hat, his signature hat. That was a gift from his mom. During the summer of 1955, Moses Wright came to Chicago. Moses Wright, my grandfather, he's Emmett Till's great uncle. During the course of that visit, uh, Emmett learned that his best friend, his cousin, Wheeler Parker, was going to go back to Mississippi with Moses Wright. And he had to go with him. And he was very aggressive about trying to go, I understand. So Mamie Till Mobley had to talk with Emmett. When a white person speaks to you, you then speak to them with respect. Get off the side of the road. No sudden movements. No sassing. Fall on your knees. Bow down. Scrape. Apologize. Beg for forgiveness should anything like that occur. Mamie had to try to warn Emmett against that, but at the same time, but have fun, baby. It's a tough, tough assignment. That was the dilemma, and continues to be the dilemma of, of the black mother, of the black family, of just trying to find a place where your kids can grow up safe and healthy and whole. That is a struggle, a conversation that every mother has. But the realness of it was understood, because that, those were the conversations we'd have to have in our household as a black person out there when you step outside of your community, that you may not be safe. And that was the truth for so many people. I remember conversations my mother would have with my brother as he was getting older and starting to drive and venture out. That was the air we breathed. We uh, met up and he got on the train and we traveled together. Uh, Mississippi. 1955, Emmett Till is heading in August to Money, Mississippi. 1955, what happened? 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. My God, the Supreme Court decision. Brown versus Board of Education was the court case that led to schools being desegregated, which means that the black kids and the white kids could go to school together. White politicians are looking for votes of fearful white people. 
Yeah, because the underlying fear was not just, you know, oh, we don't want our kids going to school with black kids. It was what's going to happen once our kids do go to school with the black kids. Are our daughters going to date the black boys? Are they going to bring home the little brown babies? A couple weeks before Emmett Till arrives in Mississippi, an activist, Lamar Smith, is shot in broad daylight, 10 a.m. in the morning, because he's trying to register black people to vote. This is the Mississippi into which Emmett Till came in 1955 in that summer. There's already tension. There's already fear. There's fear of someone like him before he ever steps foot in this state, before he ever steps off that train. summer in Mississippi. Mississippi, a state, as Dr. King said, sweltering with the heat of injustice and depression. This is where Mamie Till was sending her son, but it's home. Mississippi is not merely made by white supremacy. It's made by black love, black ingenuity, the blues, jazz, gospel. That's Mississippi, too. in Mississippi, he does write home. He sends a letter to his mom, and he sends a letter to uh, to his grandmother, Alma. Uh, he talks about what a wonderful time he's having. So it's a you know the kind of letter that you would expect to get from uh, your son on vacation. We were there at the beginning of cotton picking time. We got there on a Sunday. Picking cotton Monday, Tuesday, this Wednesday, we picked cotton. We went to money after we picked cotton. Emmett Till, Uncle Sammy, Maurice, and a girl named Ruth. And we got there, and the, the kids had gathered around playing checkers and talking outside the, the um, store there, Bryant's store. Bryant's store was a staple in the community. Mr. Bryant and Mrs. Bryant owning that store were well known in that community. They would tolerate black people coming in, but they have to respect and acknowledge the rules and the conventions of white supremacy, of segregation, of Jim Crow, and of the store. And if you do that, we're all going to get along just fine. Emmett is walking into somewhere, not realizing that he's walking into a place that's already bubbling and boiling over, where he's seen as a threat before he ever even opens his mouth. Carolyn Bryant was no doubt 
raised in a culture where she was seeing black men as a threat. This is a thought that goes back to slavery. There was fear that black men would, uh, how should I say this, procreate with white women. And this fear is still present today. You just said we're going wildy. We're going to go rape hell. I also wanted to take them after they get out of jail and put them in the gorilla cage in the park zoo. Black men are seen as these sexual beings, like sexual gorillas. This fear of black men, in that sense, has existed since the birth of America. So, yeah, it's not hard to imagine that Carolyn Bryant felt that she was somehow under attack, that even a slight gesture would appear to be something way out of order. When I go in the store, right away, in Mississippi, and the store's ran by white people, you got to bring out your southern training. Yes, sir, and no, ma'am, no, sir. Be careful. It's a way of life. You learn this. I didn't have to rethink it. I didn't have to rehearse it. I know where I'm at. So Emmett comes in. Bobo comes in the store. Just hit me all at once. I said, man, I hope he got it right. I didn't know if Mother Sashia taught him what to say and how to do and how to behave. I left him in there. Nothing happened while we was in there. And uh, Simon went in. Nothing happened. Got what they want. Came out. They came out. And sometime later, I don't know how long it was, Miss Bryant came out. She came out, and Emmett loved to make people laugh. He gives this wolf whistle. I mean, we all could have fainted. In Mississippi in 1955, and you give a wolf whistle, what is wrong with you? People were killed for reckless eyeball. He have no idea where he's at, no idea what he has done, and no one said, let's go, we just made a feline for the car. Now he's afraid because he see our reaction. And we shot out of there and going on this gravel road, dust is flying. And there's a car behind us. We said, and the car come out of nowhere because, I mean, we out in the country. Where'd this car come from? So, man, they after us. We left the car and we ran through the cotton field. And I remember uh, Bobo falling and we ran over him and, and the cotton bowls they beating your legs. And, of course, the car went on by and then we regrouped at the edge of the road. Ruth, she said, look, I know those people. She said, you're going to hear some more from me. This is not over. And Emmett, he asked us not to tell my grandfather. Of course, uh, we didn't tell my grandfather. And Thursday passed by and Friday, and we forgot all about it. And Sunday morning, that's when it all jumped off. Sunday morning. Uh, about 2.30 in the morning, I woke up and heard him talking. And he talking about what happened at the store. Well, it's dark as a thousand midnights. And, and you could hear him coming. He said, you got two boys here from Chicago. And I said, oh my God, I'm getting ready. I said, I said these people getting ready to kill us. I said, we're getting ready to die.
morning, about 2.30, uh, I heard a voice at the door. And I asked, who was it? And he said, this is Mr. Bright. I want to talk with you and the boy. And when I opened the door, there was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. And they entered my room and with the flashlight, so the flashlight shines and I can see the big ball in the guy with the pistol in there. And I'm waiting to be shot and I close my eyes. And uh, I wasn't shot. I opened my eyes and they're passing by me. Because they were looking for Fat Boy, the Fat Boy from Chicago. They went to the next room and found Simeon and Emmett. And they told him to get up. And he got up and he was putting on his shoes. And they said, hurry up. And he said, I'm not used to putting on my shoes without my socks. Brian was not the leader. His half-brother, J.W. Myron, was in control. He was running, taking care of his little brother and showing him how he's supposed to be an expert in handling uh, people that got out of line. He said he did it in the military. My grandfather tried to uh, tell them don't take him. The boy didn't have good sense or something of that nature. My grandmother offered them money. And then marched him to the car, and he drove toward money. He said, I think about the look in Emmett's eye when they took him out of that house and nobody said a word. He said, I wonder what he was thinking. And that's a burden that he carries. At times I've wondered, why didn't they put up a fight? But they couldn't. What could they have done? I think about the young woman who recorded George Floyd's death. And the death threat she's gotten just from standing there with the phone. So when I think of Emmett and his family, it's the same thing. In that moment, if they had not complied, they could have all been killed. I uh, stay right there in that room. Only person that was awake beside me was Simeon. He never left his room. No one said anything. Absolutely. It was just quiet as a church mouth, so to speak. Early on Sunday morning, Mamie's awakened by the call from Willie May, a cousin. The call that no mother ever wants to get. Emmett has been taken in the middle of the night by two white men. She goes into a panic and begins to process what can be done. She knows what that means. When white men come for you at 2 in the morning in Mississippi, it's not good. I was in church when they stopped the service and told us that two white men had taken both. And I cried. I cried. And I cried. I couldn't stop crying. This is a transformative moment for Mamie. She has to take charge, and she rises to the occasion. Mamie Till Mobley contacts the Defender and the Chicago Tribune right away and gets the Chicago media involved in a way that will make this a national issue. 
She also was able to make contact with the nephew of her stepfather, Raphael Moody, who was a union official with Inland Steel, a steel workers union, and was well connected in the Chicago community. He began to outline the things that they needed to do. They needed to call on elected officials in order to uh, make a difference in, in the search for Emmett down in Mississippi. Unlike today, politics was a thing everybody was engaged in. Chicago was a political animal. It was a force. Your aldermen represented your neighborhood that, that represented you in the city council. So you knew who your alderman was. And that was one of my first direct experiences with politics because my father was a precinct captain. And that meant that he worked in a ward for an alderman. And so Mamie would have grown up in a community where she knew um, who the precinct captain was. So the political officials at the time also became activated and even Mayor Daley got involved. As the hours ticked on, there was uncertainty in Chicago with what was being done down in Mississippi to find Emmett. And understanding the racial politics of Mississippi, everyone feared the worst. They were there to pick me up and they took me straight to Emmett Hill's mother's house. 
I felt, I don't know if the word is guilty or what, but uh, when I saw her, I'm, I'm here. I survived. My son didn't. It's kind of hard to put into words, but uh, it, it had a bearing on me. By now, from Sunday morning, her son has been missing over 24 hours, I guess, had passed. And they knew the South. They knew the South. This is the muddy backwoods Tallahatchie River, where a weighted body was found. after Emmett Till was missing, his body was found by a young boy who was fishing in the Tallahatchie River. Robert Hodges, the only thing he found of the child Emmett in the Black Bayou was the legs sticking out. And he notified the Sheriff's Department and they came out and took the body. When the, the, the sheriff came and told me they had found the body at Pillar and wanted me to go and identify the body, which I did. And we found the body, which, uh, which didn't have on any clothes at all. Father was so badly damaged that we couldn't hardly just tell who he was. Brutally beaten, a cotton gin fan tied around his neck with a piece of barbed wire in the hopes to hold the body down. It was a naked body that was swollen and battered and beaten. But he happened to have on a ring with his initials. That cleared it up. His father's ring was still on his finger, and that was the proof that Papa offered in identifying him as being Emmett. It was hard to see her heart broken. 
but she had to pull herself together because she had to get the mechanisms in place to bring him back to Chicago. Now the Tallahatchie County Sheriff H.C. Strider orders that Emmett's body be buried immediately before the sun sets that day. The grave is actually being dug when Mamie gets the information that they're about to bury her son in Mississippi. First of all, why is the sheriff even making that decision? When have you heard of a sheriff deciding that the body should be buried? There's something really, really that they're trying to hide here. For his mom, that was an immediate red flag. She set off a domino effect. Miss Mamie began to call everybody she knew. She called the governor, she called Mayor Davis, she called everybody she could touch and finally got them engaged to, to bring the child home. of the burial came from Illinois. Chicago Mayor Daly, who had just become a mayor, they stepped up and got that stop. The same train that took him down, the city of New Orleans train, brought his remains back to Chicago. Emmett's body back from Mississippi, everybody went down to the train station. The body came in, I understand, a, a wooden seal box. Her uncle and authorities had signed an agreement that the casket would be sealed. Why would Mississippi want a sealed casket? Hmm. Emma's mother said, well, give me a crowbar, give me whatever. What can they do to me? They've taken my son. What could they charge me with anyway, breaking and entering? I didn't care. The Mississippi officials were the ones with something to hide. What on earth was it? What was I about to witness? It's powerful and it's, it was history changing. That one little act of, I'm gonna see my son, I'm gonna see my son's face, literally changed history as we know it. Hi. sister crept out through our room the night they brought him his body back from Mississippi everybody came out to the house it was late me and my sister were both in bed but there was a commotion outside 
and we wondered what the heck was going on. So me and my sister crept out through our room, went to the top of the stairs. Uncle Hosey was down there, and he was talking.
to honor Mamie Till Mobley's wishes that the world would see what happened to her son. A.A. Rayner, as a mortician, took risks by choosing to break the seal, which meant that he was breaking a contract with the state of Mississippi and going against the policies that he was meant to, supposed to follow by putting a glass encasing over so that the body would be properly respected and preserved, but nevertheless viewed, and by hanging photographs within the casket itself. I mean, there are burial rituals uh, that were modified in this moment for a very political purpose. I was at the funeral, but I wasn't myself. I was in a state of shock. All I can remember is kind of being numb, and I had no remorse, no sadness, no sorrow. Because we believed that we could see each other again, I said, that is not Emmett. He said, I was in a state of shock. I said, I'm going to see him again. His body was so defaced. It was transformative in his power. People saw his body came out different than when they went in. And it can be argued that, really, the modern civil rights movement began with an open casket of a disfigured, brutally beaten boy laying down. I understood now that this was about more than Emmett. People had to face my son and realize just how twisted, how distorted, how terrifying race hatred could be. They would have to see their own responsibility and pushing for an end to this evil. Simeon Booker, who was quite an extraordinary journalist, was able to convince Mamie to have Emmett's remains photographed. And he brought in David Jackson, a Jet Magazine photographer, to photograph uh, Emmett. And that's the record that was produced of Emmett's condition when he was returned. She did more than just show what happened to Emmett. She put a visualization to lynching. I saw the picture first in Jet Magazine and suddenly realized that I was not immortal. And he was exactly like me, my age, my color. So why couldn't something horrible like that happen to me? I couldn't believe a human body had become that. And the hatred had caused that. Me seeing that picture of Emmett Till was the impetus for me actually feeling like you got to do something purposeful. I, like every black kid in the city and probably in the nation, learned about that story as part of history. But the realness of it was understood. It was the story of what could happen to a young black man caught in the wrong place at the wrong time saying the wrong thing. If they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, an image like that is worth a million lives. To see what the disfiguring consequence of white supremacy can do. But neither a Mamie Till Mobley or anybody else could ever imagine the outsized implications of how it would transform America. On Tuesday, September 6th, the day we buried Emmett at Burr Oak Cemetery, the Tallahatchie Grand Jury sitting in Sumner, Mississippi, indicted Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam for Emmett's murder. I told reporters that I was ready to give my life to make sure that what had happened to Emmett would never happen to anyone else. I meant those words. 
Mamie had to brave the racial hostility that she knew she was going to face in Mississippi to go down to tell the truth, to go down to seek justice in this case. traveling the Underground Railroad in reverse, with conductors and safe houses along the way. The word was that some officials would pass along license plate numbers to Ku Klux Klan members who would lay in wait on dark, lonely roads. She came down here knowing that they were going to get away with it. She had to. The two men admitted kidnapping Emmett, so they were already in jail in Greenwood for the kidnapping. But they said that when they took Emmett to Rob's wife, she said he wasn't the boy that had insulted her. So they let him go and told him to go back home. I was ready to testify that I knew my son, that I had recognized him, identified him. Maybe even in Mississippi, there would be 12 people who would consider the testimony of a grieving mother. Every lawyer in this county, from what I understand, volunteered to defend Milam and Bryant. All five lawyers joined together to be the defense team and two of them especially were friends of ours. And it just infuriated me because to me, they were saying to the whole world that every white person, at least in Sumner, was, was defending these two men for this horrible crime. I remember now there were little jars in stores where people could give put in money for the Milam and Bryant defense fund. I think that most people thought that they had killed him. I think most people thought that they would not be convicted for it. My father was one of the three lawyers that uh, prosecuted Mr. Milam and Mr. Bryant uh, for murdering Emmett Till. I grew up in a little town of Ripley, Mississippi. I was seven years old, and I remember my mother being very, very scared and uh, 
uncertain about what was going on. They were going to turn the murder of my son into a case of self-defense. Defense of the Mississippi way of life. It was all-white male jury back in those days. A jury is made up of registered voters. And Mississippi had gone out of its way through violence to remove all of the black registered voters. So black people were kept out of the jury pools. It was also understood that an all-white male jury had the social responsibility to return a verdict that would fall in line with the mores of Southern life. Most white men had white women on a pedestal. And, and you must protect white women from black men. It's an interesting way to think about the competing agendas and roles that these two women play in this trial. The mother of Emmett Till, the slain victim, and Carolyn Bryant, the white woman who is claiming victimhood. There is this collision course between where this country is going and where it's been. Is white supremacy going to be maintained? Is the, the white woman going to stay on her pedestal? Is the black person supposed to be at the bottom and stay there? All of these things are on trial. I was determined to go to the trial and hear what was said. I was 23 years old, and it was my first assignment covering the Emmett Till murder trial for the Nation magazine. It got huge press coverage. We had reporters all the way from London and every newspaper in the United States. There was a crowd around the courthouse during the whole trial. It was like a circus. There were people selling lemonade and people renting lawn chairs. And as we were standing there, a car parked and a lady and a gentleman got out. She was very attractive, she dressed well. She walked up to her to go in the report and said, are you Mamie Till? She said, yes, I am. It felt like we had walked into hell. There was no protection arranged for us. I kept looking around expecting to have somebody, federal marshals, the FBI, anybody, but we were on our own. Every lawyer in this county, from what I understand, volunteered to defend Milam and Bryant. All five lawyers joined together to be the defense team, and two of them especially were friends of ours, and it just infuriated me because to me that was saying to the whole world that every white person at least in Sumner was was defending these two men for this horrible crime i remember now there were little jars in stores where people could give put in money the Milam and Bryant defense fund. I think that most people thought that they had killed him. I think most people thought that they would not be convicted for it. 
my father was one of the three lawyers that uh, prosecuted Mr. Milam and Mr. Bryant uh, for murdering Emmett Till. I grew up in a little town of Ripley, Mississippi. I was seven years old, and I remember my mother being very, very scared and uh, uncertain about what was going on. They were going to turn the murder of my son into a case of self-defense. Defense of the Mississippi way of life. It was all-white male jury back in those days. A jury is made up of registered voters. And Mississippi had gone out of its way through violence to remove all of the black registered voters. So black people were kept out of the jury pools. It was also understood that an all-white male jury had the social responsibility to return a verdict that would fall in line with the mores of Southern life. Most white men had white women on a pedestal. And then you must protect white women from black men. It's an interesting way to think about the competing agendas and roles that these two women play in this trial. The mother of Emmett Till, the slain victim, and Carolyn Bryant, the white woman who is claiming victimhood. There is this collision course between where this country is going and where it's been. Is white supremacy going to be maintained? Is the, the white woman going to stay on her pedestal? Is the black person supposed to be at the bottom and stay there? All of these things are on trial. I was determined to go to the trial and hear what was said. I was 23 years old, and it was my first assignment covering the Emmett Till murder trial for the Nation magazine. It got huge press coverage. We had reporters all the way from London and every newspaper in the United States. There was a crowd around the courthouse during the whole trial. It was like a circus. There were people selling lemonade and people renting lawn chairs. And as we were standing there, a car parked and a lady and a gentleman got out. She was very attractive, dressed well. She walked up, getting ready to go in the reporter said, are you Mae Matthew? She said, yes, I am. It felt like we had walked into hell. There was no protection arranged for us. I kept looking around expecting to have somebody, federal marshals, the FBI, anybody, but we were on our own. Called. 
to testify. And they kept him back in the witness room, but uh, you know, he could see the people. And he saw how that they had the black press and all that. They sitting over on the side at a little card table. The legacy of slavery is everywhere in that courtroom. The courtroom is segregated with blacks on one side, whites on the other. Mose White was the bravest black man I've ever known in my life to have testified as he did. On August the 28th, Mose said someone came to his door knocking. He testified that they got Emmett Till out of bed at about 2 to 2.30 a.m. They brought him out of the house and asked someone, was that the boy? Prosecutor asked, was that a man's voice or a lady's voice you heard in the car? Mose answers, it seemed like it was a lighter voice than a man's. We don't know if it was Carolyn Bryant in the truck. It's been assumed over time that it was Carolyn Bryant. But then there are others who have assumed that she stayed back at the store. And when he was asked, could he identify the two men who had come to his house and taken Emmett Till away with him? He stood up and almost stood on his tiptoes and pointed at Milam and said, there he is. And then said, Mr. Bryant was with him. It was taking a stand as if to say, you killed my nephew, but you're not going to run me off. That took guts. <laughs> I see some of the athletes, they were put up their fist and kneeled during the Star Spangled Banner. It's because of his example is the example of those who are not going to be silent. Those who know that there is a price to pay. That day, my grandfather had come home from trial and uh, he couldn't sleep. He said he was restless and he got up and went and slept in the cemetery. shows up in the courtroom the white photographers and other reporters go crazy trying to get pictures of her she is dignified she's wearing black she carries herself upright what uh, do you intend to do here today uh... to answer any questions that might that the uh, attorneys might ask me to answer uh, do you have any evidence bearing on this case <laughs> I do know that this is my son. She was just amazingly composed testifying at the courthouse and saying, yes, it was his body. To speak eloquently and to be elegantly composed to tell her truth. That was remarkable. She was black girl magic and black excellence rolled into one. The defense, upon cross-examination, asked in a very aggressive line of questioning whether she had an insurance policy on Emmett Till. Had he ever been to a reform school? Um, had he ever had trouble with white people? And it was, a, by my reading, a backhanded way of suggesting that he might have been a troublesome boy to begin with. 
She knew that justice may not occur in that courtroom, but she had to do her part. And her part was to tell not just about her son truthfully, but also to face down Mississippi. Hi, everyone.